I've heard of Yakas mm. Fontaine. Uh, but it seems it has a very rich and long history and heritage as a diamond mm. producing part of the country. Um, probably as a heritage that goes as far back as maybe, you know, places like Kimberley as well, if you one thinks about it. I mean, they've been mining in that part of the world since 1870. Mm, yeah. So I, I think just the ownership I has been quite a big part of the story mm. um, because understandably so, you know, those outrage people are really, really angry as to, you know, how could this happen? Um, so, you know, the ownership dates back to, you know, the beers. Um, but surprisingly, it was actually shut in the 1970s. Um, but the assets actually remain on their books and they only sold it in 2010, um, you know, to the next owners. So, yeah, I mean, something that's been there for, for quite a bit, but apparently not a lot of actual mining happening. Um, what's remained there is just the tailings dam, um, which is what has actually then led to this really, really sad tragedy. People, you know, a couple of people losing their lives um, and people being swept away. Mm. Now, now, I guess a lot of things spring up in a story like this. You've mentioned one of mm-hmm. them. Not a lot of mining happening, um, mm-hmm. but I guess a lot of use of a former mining asset to extract certain valuable gems in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, you know, for the benefit of some of our listeners, it's a tailings operation where technology is used to process, you know, um, I guess sort of waste or, you know, the throwing away of, um, I guess, certain sand or whatever that would have been yeah. bearing of some of these precious stones and so on. Talk to us about this because I, I, I was saying to the listeners earlier on, I remember Sabanye putting out an operational update indicating that they had bought a silver or zinc tailings operation out in New Zealand or Australia. I'm not sure. And it was, you know, they were talking it up as a big part of their own circular economy type of shift. And it does seem in the mining sector that a lot more of them uh, Mm. are considering this as a critical part of how, you know, they diversify their operations. Yeah, so I think that when it comes to mining, you know, miners will always try as much as possible to, you know, avoid, you know, your deep type of mining. And so, like you've, like you've mentioned, when it comes to the tailing, technology can actually be used to extract some of the minerals that may still remain um, within that waste. Um, it's, it's something that was very interesting for me to also hear, um, um, learn about it a couple of years back. But yes, I mean, like you said, um, Sibanyan, um, making that acquisition, and you know that, you know, no fundman on that side, you know, whatever acquisition he makes, um, it's been well thought out, you know, they've been doing very well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's a strategy that a lot of miners are going to be looking into, particularly considering just, you know, the climate impact of mining and how the miners are also going to want to show that their operations um, are actually quite climate friendly and they are actually doing a lot to, to, to move away from, um, you know, operations that can be harmful to um, the, the environment. And, and I guess, uh, yeah, now to deal with the fallout from this disaster. I saw the president was there earlier on, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I guess trying to do his best speaking immaculate Soto or Sasoto. Um, but uh, cold comfort for many of the people who have lost their homes, lost their assets, you know, lost their livelihoods. And I guess for some families also lost loved ones. Yeah, I, I think it just raises the question about, you know, how well the government is holding mining companies accountable. Mm. Um, I mean, the owner of this operation currently, according to reports, is a company based in Dubai called Stargent Holding. Um, and effectively, you know, they're not even part of, you know, the Mineral Council of South Africa. 
um, you know, the lobby group also just not being aware of, you know, what exactly is happening with management, what exactly is happening, um, you know, with ownership. So I think that, you know, in terms of the fallout, we definitely, you know, we, we need to hold, you know, these mining companies accountable. Um, but they did come out saying that, you know, they set aside about 20 million rand to deal with the after, you know, effects of what has happened. Um, but like you said, you know, people have lost their lives. A couple of people are currently in hospital. Um, people have, you know, have broken, you know, um, bones and so forth. And, you know, with these things, how it always goes, sometimes the, the funds don't actually flow to the people who actually deserve to benefit. So we will watch and see, um, but we are hoping that, you know, people will be held accountable and that after this, um, you know, the Department of Mineral Resources can actually just do more in terms of, like, monitoring what these mining companies do, you know, with, you know, the waste management. Because, um, I mean, just recently we had that very tragic situation um, in the mine where, you know, young women were, you know, violently, you know, sexually assaulted. So it's things like that where, you know, the miners need to come to the party and be held accountable. Um, and we definitely hope that we'll see that after this. Yeah, and I guess uh, only time will tell how that particular one unfolds. But let's shift our attention. I mean, I found the story quite interesting, least of all um, uh, coming as it does uh, around the passing of um, uh, the uh, Queen of the British, uh, Elizabeth. Um, And this is the Dutch, uh, the Netherlands, saying they're going to be setting up some dedicated resources here to um, finance um, projects across the world um, Mm. that focus on slavery as part of their... Um, much-anticipated apology, and uh, I see some of the countries uh, that have been flagged there where, you know, such uh, resources might be spent conspicuously in its absence. Well, I don't see South Africa there. Certainly, I'm seeing Suriname, I'm seeing the Caribbean. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the money is going to be spent in the Netherlands. I would have expected some of it to be spent in Indonesia as well. Um, But yeah, really not seeing the fairest of the Cape there and Indonesia and maybe a few other places that have been touched by the stain of slavery. Yeah, so I also found that so, so interesting um, because how do you even begin to calculate the impact of slavery, you know, on not just, you know, the countries that you that you have mentioned, um, but just across, you know, the social fabric, you know, of the entire world. Um, so like you said, you know, they've, they've definitely mentioned you know, the Caribbeans there, you know, where you would find, you know, quite a lot of, like, you know, the, the, the plantations. Um, South Africa, not mentioned. Um, but it, it's it, it's a very interesting story because the Dutch government, they've actually come out and they said that they are putting together a $3.5 billion fund um, to raise awareness about, you know, the legacy of slavery. Um, but, it's yeah, it's 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 a bit conflicting for me because it's great that they're coming out, you know, to show awareness um, of the fact that, you know, this is something that has happened. However, you know, on the other hand, um, this is as a result of, you know, certain reports and articles that were written by economists dating back from 2019. Um, and so, you know, just the acknowledgement coming um, four or so years later, um, sorry, three or so years later, um, you know, we hope that, you know, it will be genuine and that, you know, the resources will actually be used not just to raise awareness, but to actually perform some form of economic development in the various mm. countries, you know, that were impacted um, by slavery across the world. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath, Wenakanya, uh, when it comes to this <laughs> one. And I'll tell you why. Yeah, why? I, I say that. No, no, no. I mean, I think, look, I get it, right? Um, mm. And I think everybody's in a phase now 
uh, you know, where it's mea culpa, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. Um, mm-hmm. And so it becomes this very performative form of, um, how do I put it, remorse, right? But it's not mm. a remorse grounded in retributive justice or, you know, restorative justice that says, okay, look, look, guys, at some stage in the development of parts in the third world, least of all Africa, we mm. drained intentionally all of the, you know, people of working age who were the most able, who were the fittest and so on in order to go and underwrite capitalist development you know, in the colonies, on the sugar fields, and least of all out in Europe where all of the value went. Um, mm. And so absent of any discussion on a reparative kind of story, um, I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, reparations, it's all good and well, but I sound, I sound. And I think, you know, the global economy that we understand would not have been possible were it not for slavery. And I think so few people are, are willing to accept that part. But... Um, Look, let's see. I mean, um, I'd rather err on the side of caution here and indifference uh, so that I don't get disappointed when they say, you know, all they're going to do is build museums in the Caribbean. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do hope that, you know, there will be something more substantial being done because, you know, just to put it in context, you know, some of the reports that have actually come out about how the Dutch um, benefited from slavery, um, in 1770, 5.2% of the GDP was as a result of slave-related activities. Now, if you think about the fact that um, in America, another report came out saying that 6.5% of GDP comes from Silicon Valley, you know, um, e-commerce and so forth, it just goes to show how much value actually came, you know, on, on the back of people who who really just did not deserve to, to, to go through what they went through. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's a sensitive issue. Um, but it's something that we have to face head on. And there are certain demands that we just have to make that might make people feel uncomfortable, but it's necessary because modern capitalism, without a shadow of a doubt, is built on the back of, you know, um, slavery um, across hundreds of years. Mm, mm. Shifting away from that one, um, let's take a look at some of the other, I guess, uh, news that came through. We saw the Afriamat Construction Index uh, giving us some clues as to whether the infrastructure-led recovery is uh, underway in earnest. What, what do you make of how this ACI came out, compiled by uh, Rulof Boerta? Um, mm. Yeah, interesting guy himself, and I'll say a bit more about that. Uh, but um, gives us some interesting clues, but the case that's being made is, you know, there's actually an economic downside in not spending as much in building RTP houses as, uh, mm. I guess, uh, we ideally should. Yeah, I... I mean, uh, I definitely, you know, hear where you're coming from in the sense that, you know, in order for the construction sector, which is quite like um, a significant employer within the economy, mm. in order for it to recover significantly, there needs to be spending from government. And that has, you know, there's been fair progress on that um, as a result, you know, of a number of court cases, some of them even going to the constitutional court. Um, however, I, I did find it quite interesting him actually raising that, you know, RDP housing, um, is, is a big part of, you know, the construction um, industry. Um, I do think, however, that, you know, there are other avenues that they could potentially look at. I mean, I think that, you know, the mining industry stands to, to, to continue to grow and so they'll be making use of the construction services. Um, and we also know that there are, you know, a lot of opportunities that remain with, when it comes to renewable energy building and so forth. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, quite interesting that, you know, he comes out specifically pinpointing RDP development. Um, I, I think that, you know, as someone who, you know, comes from the Eastern Cape and, you know, you, you've actually, you know, you walk through some of the RDP, um, you know, housing developments, not always of the best standard. Mm. And I know that I'm taking Sometimes shoddy workmanship. <laughs> yeah, shoddy, shoddy. Yeah, but, you know, I can always rely on you to come on and just say it like it is. But yeah, I mean, extremely shoddy workmanship. Um, you know, y- you look at the housing and it does not actually give dignity to a person. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective that from an economic perspective, it's great, it's going to create jobs. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, um, government and the construction industry, they need to be held to a higher standard mm. when it comes to the quality of this housing. Yeah. You know, you know what I find so interesting, uh, Kanya, when it comes to construction? Mm-hmm. Is that it's probably, and we've seen this across the world, I mean, every country that has tried to recover might be from a war, from natural disaster, from a pandemic, has always looked to infrastructure as mm. a way to, like, sort of stimulate themselves out of a slump. Um, mm. And to my mind, there's probably two reasons for that. The one is infrastructure probably has the lowest barriers to entry from a skill perspective for people to get work. Um, and we know this. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, if we look about general workers on construction sites, EPWP opportunities and so on, all of those are reliant on there being projects and projects actually coming online. But then the second mm-hmm. thing is that it also stimulates all of the linked subsectors. So when cement, glass, aluminium, steel, um, and effectively gives like an injection of demand downstream for a lot of the stuff that comes out of those sectors. Um, mm. And so I think my issue in South Africa is that we've always had this switch on off type of story. And yet we probably need in this country 50 years of just ongoing building. Um, yeah. You know, this country just needs to be a construction site for the next 50 years um, to deal not just with the backlogs. I mean, the fact that there are still mud schools, there are still bucket systems, there's still all of those things um, that are mm-hmm. so critical to like just reproducing life. And I, and I sometimes find that, you know, we sometimes think you can switch it on, switch it off, switch it on, switch it off, and it doesn't work that way. No, it really doesn't. I mean, China is the country that it is today just because of that, right? I mean, um, buildings just going up like crazy. Mm. Um, and as a result, stimulating a lot of demand for, for, for key commodities such as iron ore, manganese. Sure, um, sure. I, I just think that in South Africa, a lot of that stop and go, you know, goes down again to, to, to corruption. Um, oh, yes. Not just corruption, yeah. but also just, you know, um, key government stakeholders just not being able to, to, to plan well. Mm. Um, I, I think that, you know, the focus, for example, on, on RDP, when you need key infrastructure like roads in order to make sure that, you know, your transportation of goods goes well, you need key infrastructure like, like schools. Um, it's also just about focusing on key strategic sectors with that construction. And it's just going to be, you know, difficult in our situation where we find that, you know, a lot of the, the uh, our people in government, the planning isn't, you know, done well. It, it takes years. Um, and then when eventually, you know, people are, it's, it's, it's uh, time to hit the rubber, um, you know, there's corruption. Mm. So I think that, you know, we definitely have to sort those things out first in South Africa. Um, in order for us to to have like a fully functioning public sector that mm. can then um, create an enabling environment for business. Yeah, yeah. Anya Ginyanek for Negasi Ted.
is uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to, I guess, and we saw this in the GDP numbers last week, when it comes to, you know, um, construction, especially like residential focused construction and, uh, you know, building of uh, new works, repairs, maintenance and so on. Government, could number last when you compare us to the private sector. Um, you know, government is still yet to come to the party in investing in new construction works. And I certainly hope indices of this kind begin to flag and signal that. Um, and uh, one wonders when, I guess, uh, all of the mooted projects in the pipeline will certainly come online. Uh, but uh, one can only hope. Just as we wrap up, um, I guess the the other element I wanted us to talk about, talking about infrastructure, is uh, Uganda might soon be an oil major. And uh, mm-hmm. it seems there might be a lot of uh, construction activity as the pipeline is built uh, between um, Uganda's oil fields through to the port of Tanga uh, in the East African nation of Tanzania. Uh, yeah, what do you make of this one? And I guess uh, probably the type of thing that uh, might give some lessons because there have been similar discoveries that we've seen um, on the southern African coastlines. Yeah, so a very interesting story coming out of Uganda. So, um, you know, for the benefit of background, um, Total, um, together with a couple of other um, other companies, um, is effectively developing a crude export line, like you said, between Uganda and Tanzania. Um, And the big news that came out today is that um, the government have been able to sort of secure some form of loan pledges in order to finance the construction. Um, But the interesting thing that's coming out there is similarly to what we've seen in South Africa, um, a lot of pushback and resistance from climate change um, activists. Um, A lot of it's being centered on the fact that, you know, what is the point of actually investing in hydrocarbon um, um, in the hydrocarbon industry when, you know, oil demand is expected to peak around 2040. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's very interesting and it goes back, you know, to that ESG conversation to say that when it comes to the ESG, is the E more import, important than social, right? Mm. Um, because we do know that, you know, Uganda, um, you know, they've been doing well in terms of GDP growth, but it's coming off of a low base. Um, and also struggling, you know, with issues when it comes to um, to unemployment. Um, but, you know, there's just so much, you know, when it comes to this case. It's the fact that, you know, this work is going to be taking place um, in a lot of, like, wildlife habitat. Water supplies are going to be affected. People are going to be displaced. Yes, they're going to get new housing, but, you know, they're still going to leave their homes. Um, so, I mean, arguments on both sides, I definitely think, um, however, I, I just think that, you know, when it comes to these conversations now about, you know, oil and gas, um, it seems as though, you know, people, you know, just seem to take into consideration the one perspective rather than looking at the fact that, you know, if people need jobs. Um, and I'm not going to say where I land, um, but I just think that, you know, it, it's quite interesting what's happening um, in Uganda. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite interested, I guess, just just as a, on the tail end there, on the implication this might have. I mean, last week we were talking about how the lack of refining capacity in places like Angola, Nigeria, South Africa, you know, as, as critical sort of uh, oil refining places historically um, has meant mm. that we felt the Ukraine-Russia conflict much more um, insofar mm. as food, fuel, fertilizer and other prices are concerned. Having this kind of capacity come online, 2025 or so, uh, I mean, what what will that mean? So I don't think that, um, I mean, in Uganda, as far as I could read, I don't think there's any plans as yet 
to build a refinery. Um, the expected capacity is going to be about 230 barrels a day. Um, when you compare it to what other countries are doing, um, still quite insignificant. Nigeria is at about a million barrels per day, so is Angola. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, at, at this point, we know that for, you know, the foreseeable short term, um, the supply definitely is going to not be enough for the demand that's coming when it comes to oil. Mm. So I do think that, you know, in the short term, those barrels are going to find a home. Um, but I mean, it needs to be considered from a long-term perspective. What does it mean? Will it actually make much of a difference um, from Uganda? So I do think that, yes, there can be some form of economic benefit um, in the short term. Um, in terms of the, you know, the environmental damage, um, that also cannot be avoided. Um, but in terms of like world production, it's, it's really a, a drop in the ocean. I mean, last time I checked, the USA, which is the top producer, they're doing about 18 million barrels per day. Um, so yeah, I mean, great for Uganda, but I don't think it's much of a story, um, you know, globally. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna have to leave it here for tonight, uh, Kanya. Always a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Always fun to 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 have a conversation. All the best with load shedding, also. <laughs> Sorry. I'm saying all the best with load shedding also. All the best to you too. We all move together, hey? <laughs> <laughs> that there was Kanyan Zululeka speaking to us from Satana Capital.